This is the Catholic Movie Guy Podcast. And we are back on the Catholic Movie Guy Podcast. I am joined not by the Tim Man, but by the actual intellectual heft behind this podcast, the very right reverend doctor, not doctor, Bo Bonner. Hello, Bo. Hey, good to be back after these these many seasons of not being talking to you. Yes, I feel like we've been wandering in the desert, and now we, we've finally found the promised land, and we're going to talk about something that's, I think it's the best thing that's happened to me in maybe three, four years, and that is the uh, Paul Goldschmidt trade. Wonderful. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, yeah. Bowtie John Mosaic. And uh, you know what? And, 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 and the best thing, at least since uh, Movie Pass really messed with my life because that's why i think we have so many podcasts but yes definitely the best thing since that so in all seriousness i am super geeked up about the paul goldschmidt trade i don't want to undersell that very oh yeah yeah but yes i agree with you movie pass the let's let's spend a minute on that the death of movie pass has really hurt i mean because i love the movies but you know going and paying 10 to 15 dollars every time on a whim is just not something i'm up to so yeah, no, not, no, not, not, not as easy to, to take chances, right? Exactly. And, yeah. So, we knew it was coming, too, but you just you, you never know. You always think it'll be one more day. Exactly. I thought maybe we'd get maybe one more year out of it, but I finally had enough and, and cut up my card, I think, maybe three months ago. How about you? Same here. Same it's here. Like you can only see one movie at one in the morning. You can't be looking directly at it. It's exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well... Yeah. In all seriousness, instead of the Paul Goldschmidt trade, let's talk about the other best thing that's happened in the past couple of years, which is the Coen brothers have put out a new movie. That's always an event for me. You know, the crazy thing about it is, you know, the, the first reports were like, oh, it's going to be a TV show, which I never believed. That seemed weird. Yeah, I was and then not happy like, about that. So. And then they're like, okay, no, no, it's, the, it's these vignettes, and they meant to do it that way. And I really think they were able to pull off something that they they legitimately have not been able to. I mean, they've always had, you know, sort of interconnecting aspects of the plot within their movies. But, you know, every plot, if it's a single story, is, is really driven, you know, towards the end. Unless you go full-on mode like this, and it's really, you know, when you have six of them, you can do really interesting things. Like, and, I mean, I'm not going to, I don't think I'm spoiling things here at all. But, like, obviously, Vignette 1 and 6 are related, 2 and 5 and 3 with 4, right? They're, like, related and contrasted. And I actually think that a lot of people who are writing reviews miss this point because most of the reviewers are dumb. But uh, I, I think that they were able to pull off something very very Cohen's Brothers, right? Which is to, like, really think about two sides of the coin um, unflinchingly and let let the sort of, like, different approaches... Uh, 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 I don't know, marinade together better, and uh, I was just so glad that they were able to do this. So yeah, let's. So I, you know, I, I agree, and and I've I've never seen anything they've done that I haven't loved. You know, to to one extent or another, even their lesser lights are still some of my favorite movies of all time. But let's just do a little soft reset. So yeah, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs is what we're discussing today. It's the new anthology western uh, by the Coens, and it's six separate little vignettes, and we're gonna go through each one. Uh, separately, and I'll let Bo go ahead and tie the ones that he thinks tie together, and we'll we'll deal with that as appropriate. Um, 
I do want to say though, I did not see this in the theater, even though it is released in the theaters. It's mainly, you know, it's a Netflix movie, which, uh, you know, the traditionalist in me doesn't like, but they yeah. did actually release in the theater. I watched it on my TV. How about you? Same here. Yeah, I, I don't think it. Um, if it played up in uh, my Des Moines hood, I did not notice it. It did play here, and I said, I'm going to see that in the theater, but then I failed, as I do in the moral life so often. But anyway, <laughs> let's go. Let's break it down uh, scene by scene, or vignette by vignette. So the conceit, I guess, if there is a conceit that, you know, the stories are thematically linked, obviously, and you'll you'll go into that in more detail, as you said. But it's it's kind of like you, you open the storybook, and it's the old school. Here's, here's each chapter in the storybook, and it's a separate little story. It's kind of introduced by these pretty little uh, pictures uh, play, that are Yeah, colored plates. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, being a, a library nerd growing up, I was all like, I mean, I know this is like, that's probably the, the the fluffiness of it, right? That like all this is homage to Westerns and things like this. But I thought they did a great job with this. And just even like a little note, right? Like if one of the nice things about watching at your home instead of the theater is you can hit pause and like read what the book says. And some of the things that they just let you view <laughs> for like two seconds are hilarious exactly uh, like, yeah. yeah so yeah i encourage every viewer to do that and i did want to say you know it's it's funny because uh just like every coen brothers movie it's it, and this is what i think reviewers on either side miss which is they take it as either all a critique or all a uh just a pay on homage kind of like with Hail right. caesar and no the answer is both which is why they i say they're the most catholic filmmakers even though they're clearly jewish because they, right. it's always a both and with them so let's start with the first one which is the ballad of buster scruggs it's where the <laughs> anthology gets its title and i don't think it's yeah. the best one but i think it's the funniest one it, oh I mean, yeah. it, and it hits you right where you live. So I watched this with the Catholic movie Gal, and I would say she's not a Cohen hater, but she's not a Cohen fan, similar to her feelings on Bob Dylan, really. Yeah. And she sees the extreme violence that greets us, coinciding with Buster Scruggs singing these delightful cowboy sing-along songs. And this vignette, to me, was the Cohen brothers commenting on people commenting on them, which is they're termed nihilists and misanthropes. Yes. And that's exactly what this thing that. is all about, which is, of course we're not, we are, which means we're not, you know? Right. Yeah. So what was your reaction to this first first piece? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, this one is the, the I would say, the, the, the thickest homage one, right? Like, constantly, if you've watched Westerns, this one is just, like, ticking off all sorts of things, right? Like, for instance, the hand that he picks up, you know, that the guy left and he doesn't want to play is the dead man's hand that... Yes. Uh, that uh that uh, uh oh darn it who had it in his hand uh wild bill, wild bill yeah and to a yeah. poker player you know it's it's a very obvious trope but yeah yeah and and you know the even like the the cool water like i mean uh this is like uh, years ago we took our kids out in arizona to like a, a cowboy ballad evening and like that was their favorite song is cool water and, mm -hmm. and the, the, their ability to sort of like really um you know just hit out of the park uh, perfect casting, of course, with everything. Um, the sort of for, you know 40s and 50s Western vibe, but then of course like just thread it together with like you know dark humor and hilarious irony um, was wonderful. But then of course I actually think that last line, that narration of uh, of, of Dead Buster Scruggs says that when we get to heaven we'll shake our heads at all the meanness in the time before is basically, like, what a great way to, I mean, not only set up this movie, but I think about that line, like, once a week. Uh, so it's funny how this could be the funniest, and in many ways, 
the sort of like most, you know, just out of control, drawn really big. Uh, but like with that one last line, uh, I really think it sets up everything else. And it, it was just, it was brilliant to me. I was, I was so happy to see it. Yeah. A, a couple of points. Yeah. I think, I think this could have, it could have, you know, and it did uh, obviously introduce the anthology, but it also could have ended it just fine. And that's kind of the perfect circle of the anthology and the Coen brothers filmmaking and, and kind of their take on, on the modern world in general. And I think it's a, it's a function that some people just don't get it, you know, and right. I, I don't know if they're too earnest or they're too pure or, or what, but it's like I think that they uniquely speak to the modern predicament, which is the only way you can confront these kind of existential horrors is with this attitude of both bemusement and uh, and uh, irony, but also an earnestness that you really... I mean, they, they I think they really mean everything they say in the ending song. A lot of reviewers cheer is like, oh, this is making fun. No, I, I, I disagree totally. You know, I think... I think they totally believe every aspect of this little uh, ironic piece. Oh, I, and that's uh, the only way to confront the modern void. Does that make sense to you? If it doesn't, don't watch it. If it does, watch. I mean, I, they just—I don't know. There's just there's just so much. They like, of course, have like the echoes off the canyon, like like sing the parts correctly, and uh, <laughs> just you know, like the the horse responds to his name, Dan, and uh, and like the. The, the 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 young the young man in black who comes and like outshoots him and outsings him. Uh, I yeah, mean, as he's shooting just, backwards. Yes, yeah. It's just <laughs> oh gosh, it's just it's so hilarious. And I know that like uh, people, you know, there, there's all sorts of people in modern movies that use gore because they don't have anything better to say. Um, but I think if people, I mean, the, the Coen Brothers, whether they're making a serious or funny movie. Um, they 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 choose to use gore at specific times, and I think if you look at this whole, you know, the vignettes all six, there's times when people get shot and they in no way focus on the gore at all, right? It's 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 in, in many ways unique to this one specifically, and so what you know what are they saying about that? And and one of the things, of course, that's great about all this is um, it it's not a nice little package. Of course, you're going to like think about these things for a long time. But yes, I think people fundamentally misunderstand or like the fact that they're winking at you to them is somehow even more vulgar. And I just, I'm like, man, I don't know how you like enjoy the old Testament for instance. Exactly. And I mean, and we live in a world where you can go down the street and contract with someone legally to murder your own child, you know? Right. Uh, I mean, to, to me, they use gore in a very judicious way to shock the conscious, to get your attention. Uh, but contrast that to say like, uh, and I I like some Tarantino movies. Don't get me wrong, but to a Quentin Tarantino where he sometimes just gets into it and gets into that like torture porn uh, yes. aspect. They never cross that line for me. Um, now I will admit, my wife they probably cross the line with one thing, but I think that's more a function of her sensibilities than their, um, you know, indulging it for its own sake. But I could I couldn't agree more. I think that the use of it in this and the contrast, you know, they're they're car- they're contrasting the the reality of what the old West would have been like if these things happened with the artifice of how it's presented right. in, in Hollywood. Exactly. And I think that that's what they do is it's all like, it's pure schmooze singing, except for the gunshots, in which case, like they're gruesome and disgusting. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. So let's, let's use that as a transition because I mean, I could spend two hours talking about the first vignette and going through every moment. Let's go to the second one. I think the second one, uh, you know, first of all, James Franco, wonderful. Uh, 
it's the funniest one. This guy is wearing tin pan, <laughs> tin pan <laughs> armor. Right. And, and I think someone pan would say hand, it's, no, pan it's, shot. Yeah, pan shot. Like, <laughs> I don't think he's fighting fair, in my opinion. I, I think, you know, it's the lightest, but again, I think there's more to it uh, toward the end. I, I was struck in this one, other than the humor of the Tin Pan Man, and the fact that this guy was hanged on nearly, uh, what, three occasions, I guess? Right, I and he gets like, ah, oh, first time. What struck me is at the very end, when when he's at, at the uh, the gallows for the final time, Yes. And he says, uh, you know, the other guys, I don't remember exactly. He's kind of like fussing in the fight and he's like, oh, first time, huh? Like the yeah, reality yeah. of being confronted with death at every moment. And then he gazes upon this beautiful woman all in blue. I couldn't help but uh, strike a Marian connotation for me. I don't know if that happened to you as well or not. Yeah. Well, and so to to, to also preview this, right, where I think that we're supposed to contrast things. Like, first of all, perfect Cohen move, right? Like, Funny death, har, 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 funny death, har, 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 funny death, har, har, har. And then boom, right? Like, just like he's about to get, uh, you know, the chair pulled from under him, you know, and like break his neck. Like, we get the chair pulled from under us because, like, beauty, like, in a, in a, in a blue. And again, this is like down to the, the, the shots and the filmmaking and how they edited it. Like, like that's the most brilliant blue, like, mm-hmm. they, they could have pulled off. And of course, right now we start thinking about, and this is the first. Uh, thing that I thought of it. I mean, I had to, of course, watch through these others, but I go, oh, so in vignette number two, uh, there's a woman in a blue dress, right? And uh, like, you know, an, an Indian uh, uh, scare. And then you get to vignette number five, right? And what is the story about? Well, a woman in blue, a different blue, but a woman in blue, the the Indian scare. And then you start going, oh, we're supposed to be contrasting across right and so when we mm-hmm. get to the last three we can start talking about the contrast but i think it's really important to point out like the woman in blue it's not just like they make this point because if, if all they did was like a pretty woman in blue you'd go like oh well you know mary beauty you know how does that like attract us in a world that seems absurd otherwise but then it would go away but like they call back to these really important moments in the beginning vignettes uh, and, and, and really recall them later brilliantly. So I want to point that out. I'd actually, let's just go to five. I think it's better to take them in that order, and then we'll do three and four and six with one again. Yeah. Um, so go to five. What, what, were your, what were your thoughts on five and the tie-in? So, I mean, well, first of all, in many ways, like, okay, so this is my theory, just because since, you know, we, we only have so much time on God's earth to talk about theories. Hmm. Um, the first three, of course, are the quote-unquote nihilistic ones are the most nihilistic ones right um all three of the first ones are uh they have absurdity in them right they have people who act like they're moral who end up not being moral uh you know like the the uh uh the anti-heroes are like you know are who we're considering and things like this we pull a lot of weird moves with color right like buskers grugs and white the the new kid in black the blue dress things like this on the other ones, what, I'm, what I think was happening, right, is we, we're slowly building to more and more moral considerations of, si- of similar themes. So in the first one, in, in uh, vignette number two, uh, the near Al- uh, al or whatever, I'm saying it wrong, um, you know, beauty is used to show how absurd the rest of life is. In vignette number five, the gal who got rattled um, – it's a tragedy, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very tragic thing that happens to her, right? Like because she misunderstood what was happening about life, this gal who had just 
one thing after another happened to her. We finally seem like something good's going to happen. And then because of a misunderstanding, she dies. Mm. Um, we've achieved tragedy where of course, like tragedy is a moral achievement compared to absurdity. And you, you, you think about that, right? Like, like vignette number two is something like the man who wasn't there or something like that. Right. There's sort of like existential noir type feeling that the Coens will get into. But they also have movies like the vignette number five, where you really do realize that because a character can achieve tragedy, that like that means that there's good in the world and that underneath this stuff, like, you know, laughing at prairie dogs or a, a, a yappy little puppy named after President Pierce, hmm. that if tragedy is possible, then morality is, too. And I think they meant to do that. I think they meant to start off with absurdity and work more and more towards morality contrasting the two that's my theory so it's a very good theory and you're a very learned man and i uh, i would say that i i find much support in it and i think that you've given me a lot of things to think about that i didn't think about although i did have some similar overall thematic points but when you say i guess i would disagree just a, a little in in the margins when you say the first three are this but i don't think you maybe disagree when i phrase it this way that even in the first three so-called nihilistic there is uh, actual uh hope and objective meaning and uh, non-absurdity of life and even in the three that maybe point more toward the traditional morality or, or catholic view of of existence there's the absurdity so right. when we talk about the fifth vignette there's a couple little things and i i you know i i know they're not really obviously catholic as we understand the term but when we talk when i talk about catholic i mean it in the sense that you use with the with the common good of art Catholicism or a view of existence. Yes. I, I really do think they're Catholic filmmakers. And there's a couple sacramental. of things. In that exactly. Sacramental. Sacramental. Yeah, yeah. That, that yeah. existence is imbued with meaning, that the material right. world's imbued with meaning, etc. So they have uh, one of the one of the characters, I guess it's a little kid. I can't remember. It's been about a month since I watched it now, I guess, is walking backwards and his name is Israel to get to uh, the end of yeah. the trail. So that's kind of, I think, how this whole, I kind of, use that as my lodestar that israel the chosen people are always walking backwards to the promised land right. and uh sometimes they get there because of their their uh their you know little seed of faith and sometimes they get there despite themselves but that's kind of the the key to every one of these vignettes so in that fifth one you know uh who what's the actress's name she was in the big sick and she's the main character the gal who oh yeah uh I, yeah oh, keep talking and all that yeah, you look at it all right yeah. I think that in the end, her downfall in that is actually her her lack of of hope. Zoe Kazan. Zoe yeah. Kazan, yeah. Yep. Right, because she she shoots the bullet too soon, right? Yes. Before hope is lost, she's given specific instructions not to do that, and she actually does, and that's her downfall. And I think, man, I think that that whole that whole vignette. I've seen some others say this. That's kind of the one that could have been a film on its own if it had been flushed out too. Right. Yes. Uh, boy, I just, oh, it, I just love that. I, I, I can't, I can't speak highly enough about that one. Oh, it's, and I mean, but that's the thing, right? Is like, again, like I know that like people will just say that like we're like in the pockets of the Cohen, so it's I like am. we could never criticism if we wanted to, <laughs> but it is. I'll go ahead and be the loser who says it. Sophoclean, he, they achieve that mm -hmm. that level of tragedy. Like you, yeah. you get invested that much, and then it, it, like in, in the best way to talk about tragedy, right? It's not that characters have fatal flaws, like you know they're good otherwise, but then they're idiots. It's that you have every reason to believe that you may have done that too, and that like we 
you know, the, we mourn the choice of the character realizing that it's this incredibly intelligibly human choice, even if it was the wrong one. And like, and, and like with the Cohen twist, right, with the flipping yippy dog walking back on the hill, you know, with the, the cowboy that like, you know, did his job, mm-hmm. you know, compared to like in, in Vignette 2 where there's a bunch of cowboys, none of them doing their job and mm-hmm. all of them failing mm-hmm. miserably at it. And oh, and so just as much as like um, Vignette number two is funny in a way that like Camus could pull off absurdist humor, like number five is is just breathtakingly haunting in only a way that someone who knows how to do tragedy well does it. And they just they just hit it out of the park. It's crazy. Exactly. I mean, you know, again, I'm overstating it, and I know there's a lot of people who hate it, but I've been doing this uh, Shakespeare in a year thing. Mm. I mean, I've read Shakespeare before, but I'm reading everything over again the calendar year. I'm almost done. Of course, it's a little taxing, I can't lie. Right. But the thing about Shakespeare is, like, whether it's a comedy or a tragedy, and you see the, the genre they're working, he, he works in, he uses stories that have been told from time immemorial. It's not really about that. It's about the margins and the insights into into yes. humanity and divinity as a result. And, you know, the, the Coens are, are like, to me, the modern Shakespeare as far as cinema goes. Uh, and, you know, I just I just think they pulled it off in this. So I was I was really skeptical. And for them to thematically tie these together so well, it's just, it's a, it's a feat. Now let's, well, let's, oh, go ahead. Let, wait, one la- the one last one is, I really do think if you ask what, like, philosophy the Coens actually believe. I think we get it in this vignette. Mm-hmm. It's when they're talking about religion and how they're kind of like close, you know, and they, they, they're kind of like, you know, they, these two people who are figuring out that they're going to marry each other for, you know, when they get to Fort Laramie and all these things. And uh, the guy says, you know, in heaven, everything is firm. And we like in heaven, we know what to expect. In this life, we will be continually surprised, mm-hmm. and and and, and we'll, we have to be ready to do things different. And I'm I'm terribly like you know that's not his lines, but that's what he's getting at. And I'm like you know that's not like uh, a catechism of Trent defense of like how truth and stuff works. But if you want to talk about like what I see is like the Cohen sort of Socratic understanding of things, I don't think they think everything is nihilistic all the way down. They're their skepticism is not in the truth itself. His, the skepticism is in us. Exactly. And, that, and, and, the, and the, the, the human frailty that brings us about. And not only the fact that they say it in that story, but the fact that that sort of like reflects through all of the vignettes, to me, that's the best way to think about the Coens and not the, the sort of nihilist understanding that I think with you, I think they're making fun of in vignette one. Correct. And, and you know, I think Chesterton has a quote, I'm paraphrasing, where it was like, original sin's the only dogma I, could, I didn't have to be convinced of, you know? Right. It's yeah, evidence exactly. is everywhere. I think that's that's pretty much what you're getting at there. That That's the starting point, and then we go from there. Yeah, um, okay. Keep going. So let's go with three and four now. So three is is the one that on first, uh, first watch, I was kind of like, huh, okay. Right. That was, ow, okay, that hurt. Depressing, right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, super depressing. And then it's followed immediately by four which I think you rightly tie together, as I think the most hopeful one, right? The, uh, the... There's literally a guy who is resurrected from a grave and baptized. Yeah, him. exactly. So, so again, yeah. those contrasts I don't think are meant to be like, what are they, these are schizophrenic filmmakers. No, this is a unified whole of, of existence and that both one are guy, One guy is dropped in the water to kill him with a guy who thinks he's being merciful, but the last shot shows that he knows. He literally chose a chicken over mm-hmm. his friend. Right. Compared with someone who 
comes out of the water and saying, like, I'm going to live, right? The shot didn't kill me. I mean, like, if that's not what it is, Steve, like, they like they accidentally did that? Like, there's right. no way. You have, first of all, you, you don't have to, like, grope at straws. Sometimes people try to defend things they like and work backwards into some sort of religious view of it or, or thematic view of it. I mean, these people are, they, they are biblically schooled. Every single one of their movies, whatever you think of them, has biblical overtones. And right. the contrast here between the, the third vignette, which I take to be Cain and Abel, Old Testament humanity. Right. He's, you know, he's, he's literally slaying his brother who is, uh, I mean, not that they're literal brothers, but you know what I mean. Yes, he's offering yeah. acceptable sacrifice in his very existence. And then the the second, which is you know New Testament, totally uh, kind of unmerited grace. I don't I don't think you can just I don't Tom think you Waits. can say this Tom is what we're groping here. Oh yeah, I would. I mean, yeah. wait, fantastic, yeah. Dude, okay, so what what's crazy to me beyond the fact that they actually have um, in in vignette three, like they have so like for people who don't know, right? Like this is like a carnival barker type of guy who his friend, brother, the person he cares for, has no limbs, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is supposed to, like, he, he in the, the, the person who has no limbs is this this beautiful orator who who says, like, poems like Ozymandias. Uh, he, he says Shakespeare. He, he Cain does Abel. He does Cain yeah. and Abel from the Bible. Yeah. And he's literally right. called in the, the vignette's title as Meal Ticket to Liam yes. Neeson's character. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, I mean, first of all, just how powerful the guy is at doing oratory. Like, I mean, I, you know, we have a lot of like, I'm a homeschooling nerd. I know a lot of the people who do John senior stuff and you're like, this is what, you know, if, if students could do this, right. Um, and mm -hmm. the fact that just because he's about making money, like he used to the carnival Barker guy <laughs> literally tricks him for a chicken. That seems like it can count. Right. I'm like, Oh my gosh. That's like, the modern world. It's like sell, selling your birthright for a mess of pottage or, or oh, selling gosh. the savior for 30 pieces of silver. This guy had a chicken, man. I think you can yeah. buy a lot of chickens with 30 pieces of silver. That's and like his sort of like dumb, happy smile that then like, you know, ends <laughs> like it does. I'm just like, it's it's brutal, right? So we go to the depths of the grave with Miltech right. and then like. And wait, 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 before you go to four, before you go to four, yeah, I'll okay. let you, I just want to say one more thing. You, you're so right on this modern world thing. It's like. It's not just that he did that, that he killed this human being, his boon companion throughout life right. for a chicken. It's that he's listening to these absolutely meaningful and poignant yes. wisdom yes. from all ages, and he still does it. That's oh, yeah. humanity. And like, like the, the t right, and like, not only is he Cain and Abel, which is about what he's about to do, but like right. from Shakespeare, we get the quote about the quality of mercy. Yeah, yeah. From uh, uh, the the um, I'm blanking the Merchant of Venice, and you go, you know, like the quality of mercy, uh, it, it befits the monarch, it's cr their crown, and you're just like, <laughs> he thinks, I, and you know, that's it, right? Like they they leave just enough, right? Like the guy probably thinks he's being merciful. Yeah, but he's not. Right. He murdered his brother. And then contrast this with, like, you know, four, where the guy thinks he's killed Cain's brother, and he hasn't. So anyway, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. sorry. Yep, yep. No, so so tie that into to four on the back end there. So so four is, uh, in, in many ways, the pearl of great price. Uh, it's the the finding gold, like how Tom, Tom Waits, of course, in only a way Tom Waits can, like, 
yelling mm. to Mr. Pocket in the hills because don't he's going to like... Don't you mean Nick Nolte? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is Nolte-esque there. Oh, I mean, and just like... And it's interesting, right, because another sort of thing that they do with like the background, right, is the first three vignettes, everything is like the West as barren, mm -hmm. you know, like... It's desert. It's the it's the, the the cattle towns with nothing in it. It's the foreboding, like everything is cold and like the rivers are frozen. And then we start off with number four, which is like the bounty and beauty of the West, yeah, lush, verdant, and, green everywhere. And it's true that like you know nature goes away with like when man gets involved. It's sort of like the Garden of Eden, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, and like they disturb things. But then, you know, after everything happens, he puts everything back as best he can. He leaves and, like, nature restores itself. It's almost very uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, almost, uh, if you will. And, you know, the idea is he, he's, he discovers um, this, uh, this gold pocket. And what's crazy is I realize, right, there's two characters, like human characters in it. But Tom Waits' character is the only one who talks. Hmm. Um, but, like, it's almost they do like that so that, the scenery can talk more. I almost exactly. am convinced that you could like watch this whole thing without the um, any of the the volume on and still just yes. understand the power of what's going on. This could have been a silent film, and it harkened. You know, when I watched it, to me this one was pretty clear as day. I thought, as far as what we what were we getting out of this? When I when I first watched True Grit back in the day, and right. your uh, arch rival, the Tim Man, watched it, and he came to me afterwards and he said. I really like that. What was it about? And I'm like, Grace, Tom, because I call him yes. Tom for some reason. Right. And that's what this is about. I mean, it's just Grace, man. Grace, Grace yeah. Existence. Uh, and I mean, again, like, uh, you know, like for people who didn't watch, you know, so he, he, he figures it out. He pans for gold. He figures out where the pocket is, and he finds it. And, of course, the whole time, the man in black has been silently waiting to ruin him right at the time when he, he would get the gold and shoots him. And, like, to show, like, the patience of the devil, right, the guy sits there waiting for the guy to bleed out. But, of course, when he jumps down there, Tom Waits, because he's Tom Waits, he's probably singing his albums in his head, springs back to life and kills the guy, buries the devil after getting the, per the gold, the pearl of great price. But before he does that, crawls out of the grave, walks into the stream, and starts, like, baptizing himself, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, I mean, just so powerful – and precisely because it comes after vignette three, which is so dark. And yeah. literally, literally on the screen, vignette three is the darkest one shot. Mm -hmm. And vignette four is the brightest one shot. Right. Fantastic. And, and your whole notion of the you know, the circuitousness of the whole thing. The, actually, the vignettes even match color-wise now that you bring it up. Um, in an almost, uh, obviously in an intentional way, kind of. Um, back to, the, it's interesting you say that, though, because... When I watched three, and I was so depressed at the end, and he, and he killed this poor, you know, uh, disabled man, his his brother. Right. I'm like, man, oh, Cohen's, why did you? And I, I didn't. It didn't hit me right away. And then immediately with it following the the fourth one, it answered my questions about the third one. Yes. You can't. Yeah. You, and that's and that's. I think people get in trouble with this, especially in our circles. They want every movie to be fireproof, you know, and they right. want the moral to be bow tied at the very end and handed to you. No. And that's just not how it works. And I don't think great art can work that way because there's no point to art if you're just going to make a statement. We can do that already. Art's I mean, supposed yeah. to teach us something in a way that goes deeper and in a different way than we would just by speaking about it.
Yeah, like acting like art should be a visual catechism is like to both hate catechisms and art. Exactly, you ruin both. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, with that being said, let's let's bring it all home because we're we're nearing the half hour mark now. With the yeah. sixth vignette, which not only ties in with the first, but kind of unifies the entire whole. Oh my gosh. Oh my. You know, so I watched The Grateful Eight too. Speaking of Tarantino, so if you're talking about comparing things. Hmm. Like, okay, both, of course, have rides and carriages where people yap. Mm-hmm. And, again, I, there's plenty of Tarantino. I mean, I, if we started, like, ranking movies, like, Kill Bill, much to a lot of people's chagrin, would rank very highly for me. That's so funny like, you say that because that is my, after, I would say Pulp Fiction is still my favorite, but that's my second favorite. And that people rag on it a lot for the ultraviolence, which it has. But I also actually think it has some of the most meaningful things it oh, has yes. to say. Yeah. Very much so. Wonderful. But, uh. But, um, so, like, the carriage ride in Grateful Eight and what, like, Tarantino, like, sort of, like, sniffing his own you-know-what too much and, and like, like he kind of thinks he has to make Tarantino movies now mm-hmm. compared to, I mean, <laughs> Vignette 6 is, it is so hauntingly beautiful and, like, perfectly, perfectly cast. And, I mean, okay, the image at the end, of course, right? They're dead. They're, they're obviously dead. They're obviously mm-hmm. in the passage between life and death. But, like, the sort of end, right, where, like I said, it's very dark, but we see the two, like, grim reapers of the angels of death carrying a body up the stairway to a light that, like, literally washes out the rest of the screen. Yep. Well, what are we to compare that with? Well, the very end of Vignette 1, right, where yep. Buster Scruggs, like... And I mean, and how they make him look like a 1940s angel. I mean, it's just nuts, right? Yeah. And like, we see the sort of like absurdity of like, what do you do when a cowboy hangs up their spurs, right? And it's sort of like, uh, it's sort of, I mean, it's like, like you said, like dark 40s, I mean, like very light, schmaltzy 40s overlaid with the darkness about death. And so we compare the two, right? And we, and you, you, you talk about moral seriousness, right? Number if, if vignette three is the darkest, vignette four is like we said the lightest, the brightest. Vignette two is the most absurd. Uh, vignette five is tragedy. Vignette one, um, you know, really like we, we said, encapsulates all of this sort of like bifurcated nature, right? Like everything is sort of like the, the absurdity of it all is that you know white and black seem opposed, but then like. The, the, the guy in white is the misanthrope, right? And the, the guy mm-hmm. in black is the new kid is good. In the last one, we really see how, right, like death and life are tied together and the sort of conversations they all have from like humans are just ferrets all the way to all humans are, you know, irreducibly individual and everything in between. And then we get the, the song by uh, uh, chief Irish actor, um, Brendan, uh, why am I blanking on his name? Gleason. Yeah, uh, president of Ireland, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> uh, about like you know when you bury me, what should you do? I I don't know. I, it, and that's the one. The, number six is is weird because um, to me it's one of the, it's the most evocative one, but like precisely because that it's the most mysterious. I also think too the most hopeful, right? But also using hope to make us say like your life does matter and the, the the choices you do make make a lot of difference and when you know the the english angel of death says i like looking into the eyes of the people dying seeing how 
they navigate the transition. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a real memento mori, right? Like a very Catholic thing to do, like consider your death. And uh, instead of like vignette one where maybe death is silly or death makes us, makes all of life absurd, vignette six is no death gives life meaning. And like what journey and path you take really matters. So sorry, right. I'm talking too much. No, you, well, you're you're half the podcast. So I would hope you talk. It'd be a lot better. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's it's funny you say that because it is the most mysterious. Like if you're just looking at what's on the screen, it's the most mysterious piece. But if you're actually looking at what are the filmmakers trying to tell me, it might be the least mysterious. Right. Because I think it it is this is the Cohen's view of 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 existence. Like there are these three characters who are equally certain in their beliefs. They they all have something to say about what's true, and that I don't mean that in kind of an uh, synchronistic way or whatever. Like like you right. would say, every religion has truth. No, but that ultimately none of these people is true or is certain about anything because they will only find their certainty at death. That is the Catholic position. There, not that you that that you can't get an answer to metaphysical questions, existential questions. Not that you can't have uh, faith, but that faith presupposes uncertainty or else there is no need for faith. So that's the theological virtue that will disappear when we enter that final mansion or whatever they're going up the stairs to. And uh, all of those characters have to take their one final last gulp of the throat to see what waits them based on what they did on the carriage ride. So, I mean, that thing just, I was like, yes, it was over. And I just shook my head like, yes, you did it. You delivered. It's fantastic. I mean, and again, not only, I mean, we've really made a big deal about, uh, I mean, I have, I suppose, the, the sort of, like, cross-connections between either side of the six. But, you know, talking about movies, I mean, a lot of movies either really bungle the introduction or, like, really, you know, just totally fumble it with the end. And, man, they, I mean, just, they they just totally, they totally took off and landed perfect. And it's just crazy, right? It's just, it's crazy that they could do that. And um, to me, it's almost like one of these stories where you have people watch it, and if they don't get it, like, you don't trust them with, like, your money or your children. Exactly. And there are some people out there, good people, I know them, I'm friends with them, who don't get any Coen movies, you know, and that's fine. I can only assume it's some defect from Original Sin. I don't blame you. <laughs> I do not blame you. But, you know, you're, you're a flawed person. That's all I got to say. Anyway, one final note before we go to the final rating. I watched after this just for the heck of it. Barton Fink. I don't know if you've seen that. I've not got to see so Barton that Fink. That was yeah. that was the last Coen Brothers movie. I had seen almost all of it, I believe, in the past, but I had kind of it just didn't it didn't do it for me. I never wanted to revisit it, <coughs> and so I finally revisited. I encourage you to do the same. Uh, I think that the ending of that has some interesting parallels here. But it, it, it again, that's another movie that that some people say shows the Coens are nihilists or that they are absurdist or whatever. But no, it actually, I think this their their filmography is becoming clear to me that they, not that they have an answer to everything they say, but they always have something to say when they make their movie, and it's not uh, you know, the exist meaningless of existence. In fact, I think they would treat that with the utter contempt it deserves. So agreed. This movie was great, Bo. Bo. Yes. I'm going to go first because I, I usually it seems like I'm just copying your rating. Yeah, so you can go first because we're two, probably going to be at the, the – yeah, go ahead. All right. I have two provisos. The first is I never give a 10 to a movie I've seen one time because you just can't do that. It's not right. And second, I realize that I'm usually generous to art, especially co arts, and I tend to overrate things. So here goes, Bo. 
I give this movie 10 stars out of 10. There is no doubt in my mind that when I watch it again, it will still be a 10. So I'm just going to go ahead and forego that legal fiction and give it the 10 now. Not only is it, a, you know, no movie is perfect. It's a perfect movie. And I think it's the best movie I've seen this year of all the movies I've seen. I give it a 10. And if you want to fight me, I would uh, shoot you while singing a 40s ditty because it is fantastic. And I mean, it's one of those deals where this is how good I think it is. Um, I really liked uh, Hail Caesar. And I, I think we, we talked about it, right? Yeah. Um, I think this movie doesn't make, like, don't hear me say anything crazy. Like, I think it makes Hail Caesar look bad. But I think, like, oh, some of the things they really were trying to hit with Hail Caesar, which I thought were, like, like they were doing a really good job at the time, like, pale in comparison, I'm going to say, compared to how much they pulled it off here. And, I, and let me stress, I like Hail Caesar a whole lot. Yeah. But literally, this movie is good enough. It makes some of their other, other movies not look quite as good because I thought they pulled it off so well here interesting that you say that because i actually the movie i keep going back to with this one is hail caesar and i i i, I again i i know i'm I'm a shell whatever i'm a fool but i think it's because they're becoming more and more quote-unquote catholic or the catholic worldview uh, or the view of humanity in their filmmaking but i think this is something i've been going through with shakespeare it's not that you can't have a comedy that's meaningful or great it's just that the limitations of the genre itself sometimes limit the absolute yeah. height you can get to. And with, with Hail Caesar, at its heart, it's a comedy. And even though it's a meaningful comedy, it has a lot to say, and it's a profound comedy, it's still a comedy. This is a drama. And even though it has comedic aspects or, or tragedy, it's ultimately, you know, it, it, it is it is more important because of the type of thing it is. And so I agree with you completely. It is better than Hail Caesar, in my opinion. And that's fine, you know, just like The Big Lebowski has its limitations, it's still one of the greatest comedies of all time. Similarly, this is just shooting for something and achieving something beyond, even if the filmmakers have, you know, a similar worldview throughout. So you I know, agree the, with the, you. It's fantastic. The last thing that I would say, right, is like, um, I know that, like, God's good providence is maybe not to have this work out because it would be too awesome. But if someday all three of us, the regulars on the podcast, uh, get to sip bourbon and talk in person to make a mega podcast. What I would love to do is like talk about Cohen brothers and try to like compare like what we think, we, you know, they pull like, I would be interested for instance, not to like hear it, but to hash out which is their best pure comedy and why, because I have all sorts of reasons why I think this, that, or the other about any of them. Um, but a lot of them, like it's hard to really, you know, just pin down and, so do you go like, is it just because of personal preference or is there like a hunch you have that there's something that they get here and not there? And, and you know, you can do this with anyone, Shakespeare, Bob Dylan, Billy Joe yes. Shaver songs, whatever. But uh, I think the Coens is, uh, is is very much rife to to have those sort of comparisons. It's, it's funny you say that because I did a couple things the other night. I woke up at three in the morning thinking about work and I did two things that were very important. One, I ranked all the Bob Dylan albums. Two... <laughs> I ranked the Coen Brothers movies. And why did I do that? And is that even supportable? Is that a thing? No, I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is, even in the ranking of them, you discover something. And that that will happen. I will keep this podcast going until we're able to discuss this because I think uh, it would be fantastic. So, you know, I just can't recommend the movie enough. I know you can't either. And uh, I don't know what our next move will be, but I know that if we do a year-end wrap-up or a, or a pre-Oscar wrap-up, this thing is... 
I don't see any competition for me. Oh for yeah, yeah. This is year. like the Larry. Look, this is like Larry Bird in three point contest. If we have it, it's who's playing for second. Exactly. To me, this is this is number one, obviously. Yep. Yep. Well, thank you, Bo. It was awesome. I, I learned things, and I hope that the audience enjoyed it too. And we won't go another six months or whatever the heck it was between the next podcast. Okay. Agreed. Have a happy Advent and a good uh, Merry Christmas. You too, sir. 